Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from places like Center Sandwich, New Hampshire, Moline, Illinois, Prineville, Oregon, Decena, Norway, Utrecht in the Netherlands, and Brighton, England. Thanks for being here. And as always, smash that follow button. Leave me five stars, maybe a quick review, and share the show with your friends. One quick note before we get started, I just want to mention that the team from Valkyrie Racing is now at the South Pole. So if you haven't heard that story yet, it's episode 44. Check it out. They're driving their Porsche 356 356 miles across the ice, raising money to help fight child trafficking. And I'm just really excited for them. What an adventure. And you can see more on Instagram at Valkyrie underscore racing or on their website at ValkyrieRacing.com. There's also a way to donate there, and you'll hear more about that later on in the show. All right, well, today I've got an unusual show for you. It's the story of how the American car makers and one executive from General Motors in particular helped mobilize the country's industrial might for World War II. My guest is best-selling author Arthur Herman, and his book is called Freedom's Forge. It's a fascinating story, and that's coming up right after this. Christmas is right around the corner, and you can't fit a full-size car under your tree, but luckily, Model Citizen Diecast has you covered. They stock collector-grade scale models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the whopping 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. And my listeners get 10% off with the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. Shop their online catalog at ModelCitizenDieCast.com. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast for Christmas. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, my interview with Arthur Herman, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Today's show is a little bit of a departure. My guest is Arthur Herman. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., and he's also the author of 10 books, his most recent being The Viking Heart, How Scandinavians Conquered the World. Amazon has called it one of the best history books of 2021. But today we're going to be talking about one of his earlier works, which is entitled Freedom's Forge, How American Business Produced Victory in World War II. Dr. Herman, thank you for joining me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of your work, and I wanted to have you on because the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor is upon us, and the last of our World War II veterans are now passing into history, unfortunately. So I thought it would be an opportune time to talk about the book and specifically how the auto industry contributed to the war effort. Now, I think a lot of people today are sort of under the misapprehension that Pearl Harbor happened and suddenly we tooled up uh, to get into the fight, but that's not really the case. No, it's not. I mean, you're right. I mean, a lot of it is what they see in documentaries or in news clips about Pearl Harbor and its relationship to the U.S. as a, as a major military power. And the idea is kind of like, you know, the image that the bombs drop on Pearl Harbor, and then all of a sudden American factories are producing planes and trucks and machine guns and uh, uniforms, and America goes to war just, you know, in this sort of seamless seamless transition from peacetime to wartime. And the whole reason I wrote this book is to explain that that's not what happened at all, um, that it wasn't the case that on December 8th, or December 9th, suddenly the federal government said, okay, everybody's going to start making more material so we can win this thing. The shift, the transition 
really began, as I explained in Freedom's Forge, 18 months before, when Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, realizes that the fall of France to the Nazis, and then the imminent possibility that Britain would fall also, would mean that uh, Nazi power and domination of Europe would be able to project power even to the shores of the United States and the Eastern Seaboard. And when then Chief of Staff General George Marshall told him, look, if Hitler wanted to land seven divisions on our coast, there is nothing we could do, the U.S. Army, to stop him, that he would just be able to sort of roll as far as he wanted to across the American continent. When that, when that realization really hit home for Roosevelt, and he realized that something was going to be, have to be done to prepare U.S. for what would be an inevitable war in Europe, first of all, was, was the main focus of this, but also uh, for the other conflicts that might be looming in the Pacific, that something drastic would have to happen to begin the transition to a wartime economy, that he would have to mobilize the best minds who understood about manufacturing, understood about America's industrial base, focused on this. And so... As I explained in Freedom's Forge, the person he calls is Bill Knudsen, CEO of General Motors, and says, what are we going to do? How are we going to get this country ready for that? And that's really the starting point for the, for the story of the book. We're going to talk about Bill Knudsen, but uh, you have a funny anecdote about his name. So he was the big strapping son of a Copenhagen uh, customs clerk. That's right. Born in Copenhagen. Uh, Came to the United States as a young man in his in his 30s, actually. Um, and you know, worked in the Brooklyn shipyards. He was, American, he was a Danish immigrant to America. Um, and it's interesting too, because my new book, you know, is about the Scandinavian experience in America, and Bill Knudsen was part of it. Now, as a as a Dane, um, of course, his name, he would be known as as Willem Knudsen, would be the way to pronounce his name. And uh but it's interesting because when uh, a lady reporter asked him one time and addressed him as Mr. Knudsen, he said, uh, no, that's not how you pronounce my name. He said, you don't call it a knee, do you? <laughs> so so, so K-N-U-D-S-E-N, he pronounced as Knudsen. He Americanized it. He, he, that's right. He exactly Americanized his name, and it was part of his embrace of his new nation. Uh, and why he, when Roosevelt makes the call to him and asks him, "How are we going to do this? Can you help me with the with with getting America mobilized for modern war?" Uh, why Bill Newton, although he was a Republican, and of course Franklin Roosevelt was the definition of of, of the New Deal Democrat. Even though he's a conservative Republican, he came on board because he believed that this nation needed protection against that threat that was coming, and that he and his colleagues could find a way to achieve that transformation and mobilization without, on the one hand, Washington nationalizing every major industry, which some of Roosevelt's advisors wanted him to do, or without throwing the nation into complete chaos, as what happened when America tried to mobilize for war in the previous world conflict during World War I. It was an enormous disruption um, of the industrial base, of transportation networks. Uh, it really was, was a failure. 
So Knudsen knew that there would have to be a plan that would avoid, on the one hand, a complete takeover of Washington of all of the economic resources and manufacturing capacity. But on the other hand, one in which the role of private initiative and private companies and private sector could be channeled and directed in ways that would make um, uh, that would make the effort as efficient and as and as time sensitive as possible without losing track of that you know entrepreneurial energy and expertise that the private sector could bring to such a project. I'm glad you mentioned World War One because I think we should set the stage a little bit more here. The interwar period was very tricky for the United States military. After World War I, the, the public was embittered. They didn't want any part of the, the, the coming conflict. The military was disincentivized to engage in, in defense manufacturing. Yeah, totally. And there was this, on the one hand, there was a strong isolationist sentiment that had swept across America after the disillusionment of World War I. It's supposed to be the war that ends all wars makes the world safe for democracy, guess what? It seemed to really make the world safe for dictatorships like Nazi Germany, like fascist Italy, like Imperial Japan. And there was also a belief that America had gotten involved in the, there was a totally unnecessary war that's involved in a World War I, that there was, that the, that, that a conspiracy of major industrialists, both in this country and abroad, had engineered this conflict in order to profit from the production of armaments and munitions. The term for these companies, companies like DuPont, for example, you know, which uh, was you know, a major manufacturer of uh, gunpowder and other, other uh, uh, should we say, explosive top uh, products used in warfare. The term for it was merchants of death. And so it was a feeling that any company, anybody that was involved in the manufacturing of armaments and munitions was by ipso facto an evil um, force in uh, in the economy and in our foreign policy in the same way. And then you had the military services, which had suffered, suffered one round of budget cuts after another. You know, the biography I did of uh, Douglas MacArthur talks about the struggles he had when he was chief of staff of the army in dealing with a constantly shrinking budget. I mean, it was a, it was, it was a, dark period of time for American military services. And uh, it was even in the 1930s in Washington, it was really bad form even for admirals to appear on the street or office buildings in uniform. Uh, you were better off you know, getting around in civilian clothes. So all of this, the point is, all of this was part of what had gotten Roosevelt elected in the first place, was to keep America out of conflicts abroad. And at the same time, was also one in which uh, preparing for war was seen as being saber rattling. As saber rattling is a really dangerous direction for America to be headed in. So both Roosevelt 1940 and Bill Newton and his colleagues are really swimming upstream to try and get America aware of the fact that it's got to prepare for the new kind of mechanized warfare that, Nazi, that the Nazis and the Japanese were unleashing. Uh, around the world. And we had to go from, you know, a U.S., uh, an army, which was 19th in the world in 1939. I mean, Holland had a bigger army than we did. Hungary had a bigger army than we did to a force which would dominate 
uh, a global conflict on two fronts in the Pacific and in Europe. And the book is really about how Knudsen and his colleagues were able to do that. Meanwhile, in Europe, they're pursuing a policy of appeasement with Herr Hitler. That doesn't work. He rolls tanks into Poland on September 1st, 1939. By 1940, Franklin Roosevelt, you write, is contemplating retirement. And a sobering moment happens when he gets word from Winston Churchill that should England fall, the Germans may capture the entire Royal Navy and use it against the United States. Yep, that's a pretty scary, very scary prospect. A Nazi-dominated Atlantic and American Atlantic seaboard. That's that's what really gets Roosevelt off uh, on the case and realizing we've got to do something about this. And at that point, he summons Bill Knudsen to the White House. Bill Knudsen is 61 years old, I think, at the yeah. time. He's in the twilight of his career, really, mm-hmm. having... And and let's just go into some background on on Newton. He worked for Henry Ford, improved his assembly line process, spearheaded the opening and functioning of many, many Ford factories worldwide, had a falling out with Henry Ford, and then went over to Chevrolet. And Al Sloan uh, at General Motors hired him to run Chevrolet. And in short order, by... 1927, 28, 29, Chevrolet was really taking a piece out of Ford's market share. That's right. They went from, under Knudsen's leadership, Chevrolet went from GM's loss leader to its probably most competitive division vis-a-vis Ford for the, you know, the car for every man, as we would say today, every person uh, that was affordable, uh, that was uh, attractive to look at and to drive, but was also at the same time um, able to integrate the most up-to-date technologies as the years roll by, by, you know, so that each year's model is an improvement over the last. And that's the other thing I think we've got to notice in terms of Knudsen's role in automotive history, let alone the history of World War II, is that he's really the person who made it possible to introduce and pioneered the idea of yearly models for cars because he redesigned the mass production model that Ford had used to turn out the Model Ts and, uh, and to make the Model T the dominant uh, automobile in America. And he retooled it literally so that it was able to incorporate design changes without having to shut down the production line to install new tools and new dyes and do the other kinds of changes that a major uh, alteration in the design of an automobile would normally require, which is one reason why automobile designers were very wary about doing that. Um, certainly Ford was, you know, the Model T was the Model T and it was going to rule the world for the foreseeable. That was his view of it. Newton's view was, no, we'll be able to redesign this to make the assembly line a, a, um, a tool itself and make it a, a means by which we can incorporate new technologies, uh, like, for example, automatic transmission. Um, overhead valve. Overhead valve. That's right. Um, and these kind of, and we can, we can sell this to consumers uh, who at an affordable price, and then they'll look forward to the next up improvement, the next, next, set of up, next set of updates next year. Um, and it's that system of flexible mass production that Newton really pioneered that becomes, as I explain in the book, 
it becomes the key to being able to mobilize America's factories um, and particularly its automobile factories for wartime production. One more thing about his relationship with Ford. You tell the story that he approached Henry Ford, who he was quite close with, having designed a new automobile to replace the Model T and Ford rebuffed him. And that's essentially the design that he took to Chevrolet. So it could have mm-hmm. been that that's right. So it could have been that the 1927 Ford uh, was a, a Newton design, but but it ended up being the 1927 Chevrolet. Chevrolet, that's right. And and uh, it, and General Motors and Alfred Sloan were the beneficiaries of that switch that Newton made from from working for for Henry Ford uh, over to taking over Chevrolet. And then, of course, when as I explained in the book too, when Henry Ford realized that he was going to have to move beyond the Model T uh, and designed and got ready for production for Model A. He had to shut down every assembly line in order to make the change. Um, it was a it was a huge a huge manufacturing boondoggle, um, making the shift from the Model T to Model A, and he lost, I think, precious time and precious market to Chevrolet as a result. Of, uh, of having missed the opportunity to take the Knudsen system and adopt it and, and adapt it to Ford's conditions instead of letting it fall into the fall into the very grateful hands of uh, of Alfred Sloan and the General Motors people. And so Franklin Roosevelt meets with Knudsen and immediately Knudsen returns to Sloan's office in New York City and says, I'm quitting. Uh, the president needs me. Right. And Sloan says, you are crazy. In, in effect, and sort of says, you're nuts to go work for him. It's going to be a thankless task. Um, Sloan had a very pessimistic view about America's future in the face of the rise of Nazism and totalitarian dictatorships. He really didn't see how it was going to be possible for America to really compete head on in a military way with what the Nazis were, had achieved and what, what they were uh, uh, already had, had, had mastered, which was, you know, complete domination of Europe uh, by 19, by the fall of 1940. Um, Hitler really did look like the, 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 the future, the, the future for societies and economies around the world, let alone, let alone for Nazi Germany, for Germany and, and, and Europe, which is ironic, given GM's 1939 World's Fair exhibition, where you would enter a hall and sit in a big leather chair, and it would rotate on a conveyor belt over around a diorama of the future America, with uh, these wonderful buildings and master planning and uh, cars everywhere, and uh, and uh, suburban paradise. Yeah, and, that, and I, I have a chapter of that in the book about the 1939 World's Fair and what a what a preview it was for what America was in fact going to look like after World War II, um, which is you know the America of the 1950s of uh, almost unbridled affluence, of expanding horizons, uh, of a kind of optimism about what the future and the future technology and 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 the future of of, of the automobile. Um, as a as a uh, as an indispensable tool 
for modern life. It, it was all there laid out in the 1939 World's Fair. Um, and um, it was ironic, as you say, that whereas GM saw the future in this kind of bright colors and celebrated it in its display at the World's Fair, but side by side with that was this deep pessimism on Sloan's case and many others, believe me, in the United States who really thought that you can't, <laughs> you can't buck the trend. And that is the trend towards uh, totalitarianism, towards uh, dictatorships like Hitler's, uh, and that that's what the what the future, what the what the near future held. And the U.S. America's best option was to stay out of those conflicts. What we didn't realize is that uh, at the time, what many of them is, is that we would be drawn inevitably into those conflicts because Hitler and his minions, like the Japanese at the time realized that their domination of the world would not be possible as long as America remained the shining example of democracy and capitalism and of a prosperous future uh, that was the alternative that they were you know, unable to tolerate and, and, and could not live side by side with. And so Bill Knudsen trades his office at General Motors for a dingy little office in what the Social Security Administration? Social Security Building. That's right. That's right in Washington D.C. And uh, you know, he has to stand up this committee on uh, a national readiness. Um, and he, what he did, as I explain in Freedom's Forge, is is he brought on from the very beginning a team of experts from the private sector who were connected with what were at the time the most advanced companies in terms of technology and engineering uh, and of understanding how the modern industrial process worked, not just in the automotive arena, but also in areas like telecommunications, AT&T, for example, uh, also in the area of um, electronics with General, with General Electric, for example, and then eventually Westinghouse. And that when you brought together these uh, executives as a team, that they would be able to come up with a way in which America could adjust and make the shift from a totally peacetime economy, which was just beginning to recover from the Great Depression, just beginning to see sort of light at the end of that tunnel, how you could convert that, uh, that economy into one that could produce more war material than, as, he, as Knudsen predicted to Roosevelt, more war material than you can shake a stick at, that there would be a artesian well release of industrial production and entrepreneurial energies that would come from that transition, that the Axis powers and even our allies would not be able to really understand or, or be able to conceive of. Um, but it began, in his mind, with the, the, the starting point for that transition. He told Roosevelt, Give me 18 months and I can do that. I can make that transition to the production of planes and tanks and, and weaponry uh, of a, on a scale no one's ever seen because I can unleash that flexible mass production power, the power that's it's built into American mass production, industrial production. But the key to it, as I explain in the book, the first step was the machine tools, that, that the most important thing was to was to make the transition to the machine tools that you would need to make what we would call today weapon systems. 
whether it's airplanes or aircraft engines, uh, tanks, um, the whole range of, of what constitutes war material, that once you got the machine tools converted and installed and lined up in the production process, then the rest would, uh, the rest would happen. Behind locked doors and almost 100 General Motors plants throughout the country lie thousands of secrets, military secrets that Hitler would give his best panzer divisions to know. For in these plants is being designed and built a large part of the avalanche of weapons that will break the back of the Axis. Newton has no time to waste. Immediately, the British are asking for thousands of tanks and planes, and, and they can't spare a moment. And he starts to investigate, can we fill these orders? And he finds gross inefficiencies across the board. For example, the tanks are designed by the Rock Island Arsenal, an army installation, right? And, they're, and, and the armor plate is riveted together, which is horribly inefficient. and It's bloody dangerous, too. And dangerous. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, what happens with the, the riveting, as you say, it was incredibly labor-intensive. Um, and it was also dangerous simply because when the when the tank was hit on the hull or in the turret by a by a shell, those rivets on the interior of the tank become flying missiles. You know, they're deadly for crews under those circumstances. And so what Newton says, this is this is crazy. Um, why don't we try welding uh instead of riveting? Um the the parts of the hull and the turret together. And, you know, the, the Rock Island Arsenal's response is, well, this is kind of like the way we always did it, right? So instead, he turns to a private company, which is Chrysler, and says, what do you guys, do you think you could do this? And K.T. Keller, who is the CEO of uh, Chrysler, says, I don't know. He says, I don't, I've never seen a tank, but it sounds like, you know, if it runs on wheels and on the combustible engine, I can make it for you. So as I describe in the book, they take him out to the arsenal. They give him a, a test drive on one of their uh, on one of their tank models, and he says, "Yeah, we can make these." And so they do. And uh, first with Chrysler, um, and then eventually with General Motors. The automobile companies in America are in the tank manufacturing business, and in the process, they introduce a number of improvements and innovations. In the design, some of which work out, some of them don't, um, and uh, it becomes a, a, a then a, a manufacturing problem of how do you make more tanks um, and as quickly and as efficiently as possible, just as you would with uh, with as you were making automobiles for commercial purposes. You're thinking about military production in precisely the same ways. And again, because of the flexible mass production system, which companies like Chrysler and General Motors had already uh, adopted, it becomes possible then to introduce changes based on what the response is in the field. Um, and one of the most important <laughs> introductions was we need thicker armor, right? We need bigger guns to compete with the Germans. Uh, and the way in which the Germans are upgrading their upgrading their their tanks and weapons here as well. So you turn what is what seems like a uh, an insoluble problem. Uh, how do I you know how do we make these big heavy things? 
um, which you know are are made out of uh, out of uh, large amounts of steel and engines and things like that. Originally, the idea is maybe we should turn to locomotive making companies. There's a way you turn this from that into a, into a into a standard manufacturing problem, and that's what Knudsen did, and that's what they did not just with tanks. It's what they did with airplane engines. It's eventually what they do with airplanes at the Willow Run production facility. And it's what they do with machine guns, what they're going to do with anti-aircraft guns, 20 millimeter anti-aircraft gun, the 40 millimeter anti-aircraft gun, all the way down the line. You turn the, the, the mystique associated with war material and weapon systems is becomes demystified and, and, and you're able to engineer it in a very different mindset when you think about it as, a, as an industrial manufacturing problem turning out product instead of turning out lethal weapon systems. And that's, that's really the key to what it is that makes the arsenal of democracy work. A phrase, by the way, as I point out in the book, that Bill Knudsen first coined and that Roosevelt adopted in his famous fireside speech. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. We must apply ourselves to our task with the same resolution, the same sense of urgency, the same spirit of patriotism and sacrifice as we would show were we at war. Because the idea of it originally, it's important for us to realize this. Again, we come back to the, you know, the political atmosphere of 1940. This is, you know, a year and a half before Pearl Harbor. Americans don't want to be involved in the conflict. So the way in which Roosevelt sold this to the public and to Congress was that this war mobilization, the the, the shift to in our industrial sector to making war materiel, is part of arming others so that they can fight the war we won't have to it turned out to be wrong but it was a feasible way in which to get congress and the public to accept the fact that maybe these merchants of death have some use after all and that is is that they're going to keep keep great britain they're going to keep um china they're going to keep it by in June of 1941, when Hitler invades the Soviet Union, they're going to keep Russia in the war so that we don't have to send our boys to go fight and die in, in foreign lands. It was wrong. <laughs> the protection was incorrect. Um, but without that, that, that narrative and, and message that Knudsen and Roosevelt put together, America would have been in really bad shape on December 7th, 1941. It already was. I mean, there was a lot of ground to be made up for. But the 18 months that Bill Newson had told Roosevelt he needed to get us up to speed for manufacturing war material on a scale where we could compete with the Germans and with the Axis powers, those 18 months were, were gained between June of 1940 to December of 1941. I'll be right back with more Horsepower Heritage right after this. Horsepower Heritage is teaming up with Valkyrie Racing to support their efforts to combat child trafficking. And with your donation, you can enter to win one of 10 unique digital art pieces of their Polar Porsche 356. Just go to ValkyrieRacing.com 
forward slash donate 356. And once you make your donation, visit my homepage at horsepowerheritage.com, then click on the contact button and send me your name and the reference number for your donation. You'll be entered to win one of 10 of these terrific art pieces by artist Wade Devers. The entries will be drawn at random on December 20th. And if you miss any of this, don't worry, just look in the show notes for complete instructions. 100% of your donation goes to help victims of child trafficking in five countries. And on behalf of Valkyrie Racing, thanks for your support. Interesting to think about how we paid for all of this. The war loan program didn't really start until after we officially entered the conflict, did it? No, that's right. And so when we do enter the war, we shift our entire focus to war production, conservation of materials, rationing. And you go to the movies and the first thing you see is buy war bonds, keep them moving, keep them flying, right? Keep them flying. In cooperation with the aircraft industry, General Motors has pioneered in applying mass production methods to the manufacture of aircraft. Work goes on day and night under the deft fingers of General Motors men and women. They are producing an avalanche of weapons for victory in General Motors manufacturing centers all over America. One of the most important of these centers is Dayton, Ohio, a city gearing up to the grim task of war. For Dayton is making victory its business. Dayton has a story to tell the story of a city at war that's right that becomes the key motive but the only you're absolutely right the only correction i would make is an entire focus an entire shift because this is one of the other amazing things that newton and his colleagues and the whole war effort was able to achieve and and it's it's one of the i think key key themes of this book what they were able to do was to shift massively into war, war production. But at the same time, they were able to preserve a civilian sector that was still producing shoes and light bulbs and clothes and all the other things that, were, that would sustain consumers during a wartime. And in fact, when you look at it in term, from a statistical point of view, by the end of the war, by 1944, 1945, when the U.S. factories are producing incredible amounts of war material. You know, our shipyards are turning out eight aircraft carriers a month. Eight. Inconceivable. Talk to anybody in the in Pentagon today about what that looks like and see what their reaction is. You're turning out a war plane every every five minutes coming out of the assembly line by 1944-45. But at the same time, only less than half of the total U.S. GDP was converted to wartime production. We were still able to keep a, a civilian sector going and growing during that intense war effort. Now, you didn't have access to everything you wanted. As you pointed out, you had rationing. You had rationing, for example, of gasoline. You had rationing of, um, of shoes and clothes because those resources were primarily directed towards the basic resources were directed towards the war effort, understandably so. But there was still enough left over that civilians did not feel you know, unduly crimped by the fact that they were now at war, now in war on two fronts, you know, in the Pacific as well as in Europe. It's incredible, incredible achievement. And it's a tribute both to the American economy 
but just how strong and how resilient and flexible that economy is and continues to be to this day. But it's also a tribute to Bill Knudsen, I think, and his colleagues, particularly in the automobile industry, that they were able to, which is where, by the way, the shift did come completely over to wartime production. Civilian lines of production and civilian lines of production did come to an end. That's true. But the point is, is that the is that the the, the form of production that they had pioneered, the flexible, flexible mass production that they had made part and parcel of the automobile industry had now become the, the, the way in which to save the world, save the free world from excess domination. Dr. Herman, I'm glad you pointed that out because I was thinking when I said entire focus, I was thinking about the automobile industry. But Sure, of course you were. It, yeah, it, it's definitely good to mention that that life continued, if not entirely as normal, as as uh, uninterrupted as possible on the home front. That's true. I mean, there were some things you couldn't get. For example, if you talk to my dad who grew up during those war years uh, as a young teenager, I mean, for you couldn't buy Coca-Cola. That was really, he lived growing in North Dakota because the Coca-Cola was all being shipped overseas. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the um, uh, Coca-Cola had worked out a deal with the Pentagon uh, during the war years, I don't talk about this in the book, but it's really a fascinating story. They worked out a deal. They said, I'll tell you what, if you will ship our Coca-Cola, right, our, you know, our, our facilities, right, our product, ship it along with war material, we will make sure that the price of a bottle of Coke remains one nickel anywhere in the world. Anywhere where there's American servicemen, they'll be able to get a bottle of Coke for a nickel. And the Pentagon said, let's do it. And so they did. In fact, it's really the war that made Coca-Cola a global brand. Right. Because wherever U.S. servicemen were, there was going to be a Coca-Cola machine there where they could plink in a plink in a nickel and, and get a bottle out of that. Brilliant kind of strategy, but also one that was, from the point of view of morale boosting for American service personnel around the world, was hugely important. You knew where any anywhere you were in the jungles of New Guinea, that within reach for you was that product that reminded you of home, and it was that was an essential part of what the of the life you had left behind uh, in America. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, how important it would have been to be able to have a Coke, maybe a Hershey bar, a pack of Luckies. The Hershey bar is another great example. I'll tell you another one, too. The other great example is what happened with the Mars Company. Again, this is not a story in the book, so this is one, this is one for, your, for your listeners. Um, the Mars Company um, realized that the uh, expansion of, you know, uh, this massive uh, move of uh, expansion of the U.S. Army and, and military services as a whole would be a huge marketing opportunity for their product, right, for candy manufacturers. And they immediately sensed that a company like Hershey was really jump into this market, you know, to be able to supply, you know, chocolate to everybody, um, everybody all over American servicemen, you know, and wherever they were going. So Hershey, so Mars said, so what are we going to do about this? How are we going to handle this? And they said, well, I'll tell you what, a lot of our service people are going to be in tropical areas, right? With extreme heat conditions. What if we come up with a product that will be that they can use a chocolate product that's not going to be something that's going to, you know, sort of form a puddle, right, in your pocket 
uh, or in your jacket or in your haversack, wherever you go. So what they did was they came up with a product, which they had had before, but now they really sort of mass produced it, which was little small candies uh, wrapped in a hard, hard candy, right, with the chocolate center. And they, the, they dubbed it M&Ms, right, which was the initials for the company. Uh, and the wartime slogan for it was, right, melts in your mouth, not in your hands. Right. The M&M, that whole slogan is all part of a marketing strategy during World War II for Mars to compete with Hershey for that, uh, for that market. Brilliant. Yeah, it is brilliant. Um, let's talk about the Willow Run plant briefly, because okay. I think it is absolutely, it, it exemplifies the arsenal of democracy and really it's a centerpiece. So yeah, tell us about the Willow Run plant. Well, this was the brainchild of another Ford executive, a colleague of a former colleague of Bill Knudsen's, and also a fellow Danish American, uh, Charles uh, Sorensen. And um, when his former colleague, but now rival, Bill Knudsen, uh, came to the automobile industry to ask them to help build um, aircraft engines and, and parts for airplanes. Uh, Sorensen decided that he was going to one-up Knudsen and went up the whole automobile industry by not just building parts for planes, but building entire planes. And the plane that he focused on was the B-24. Um, the B-24, which was uh, built by um, built by the Consolidated Aircraft uh, on the West Coast. And uh, his, his, his idea was, his vision was to um, turn the B-24 from a, into a mass production product, one that would be produced uh, in the same way as which you would produce automobiles, you know, one after another coming off the assembly line, and in which all the parts and all the components um, would come together uh, in a single process, and at the end, boom, you'd have a bomber, a four-engine bomber that's ready to take off and ready to go into service. Now, as I explain in the book, uh, Sorensen's vision um, grossly misunderestimated the problems and difficulties of converting to a um, uh, from from making automobiles with you know tens of thousands of parts to producing a plane made up of a quarter of a million parts. Um, the enormous complexity, the enormous problems that went with this, and so the plant that he built. Uh, and oversaw in Ypsilanti, Michigan, the plant at Willow Run, which was the largest industrial plant in the world when it was completed, uh, over a mile length from one end to the other. The Army Air Forces asked Ford to undertake mass production of this bomber, in addition to other aerial weapons produced by the company, which included troop-carrying gliders, turbo-superchargers, and the 2,000-horsepower Pratt & Whitney aircraft engine. This 80-acre plant was built in record time. In reality, it was made into two plants under one roof, a manufacturing plant and an assembly plant. The now famous Willow Run Airfield covers 1,434 acres and provides 280 acres of concrete runways and taxi strips enough to make a two-lane concrete highway 120 miles long. And this was Willow Run's product, 
a giant flying machine for which the plant was so carefully tooled that it could produce one every 55 minutes. This is the Army Air Force's Liberator Heavy Bomber. This great aircraft is 110 feet from wingtip to wingtip and 67 feet 4 inches from nose to tail. Powered by four 1,200 horsepower air-cooled engines, the Lib can carry 10 men, four tons of bombs, and 5,000 rounds of machine gun ammunition at better than 300 miles per hour at high altitude. It took months and months of hard work and trial and error to really be able to make to, to bring about the transition that Sorensen wanted and demanded, which was to move to you know turning out an entire airplane by the time you got to the end of the Willow Run industrial process. It's an incredible story. I, I've got you know a couple of chapters talking about the struggles and the challenges that uh, Sorensen and the Ford engineers faced with the Willow Run production effort, but it was one in the end that uh, succeeded. Uh, that was able to turn out uh, complete B-24s. They were able to go into service with uh, the U.S. Army Air Corps, both in the Pacific and also also in Europe. And it really is, I think, part of the great (laughs) stories of the triumph of mind over matter, of human will uh, over, over physical limitations that the plant was able to be completed as a whole. And it really kind of, I think in many ways, is a, it kind of epitomizes the way in which the entire automobile industry in America had to deal with one unexpected and unprecedented challenge after another. And executives and engineers and workers on the assembly line and foremen uh, working, in the, working in the auto unions, all of these people were able to come together because they realized that they all had they all served a common purpose, which was America's got to win this war, um, and uh, we've got to come together in order to achieve that. And that was Bill Newton's great motto, wasn't it? Was is that Americans we can achieve anything if we if we do it together? And the war effort and the war mobilization really demonstrated that, starting with starting with the automobile industry. In fact, you say in the book he once said on the radio, "American ingenuity." has never failed to cope with every specific problem before it. And if we have your support and confidence, we will surely succeed. When he was in front of an audience, he would often say, progress in the world is accomplished by average people. That's right. Isn't that an amazing statement, though? And that's really what it is. It's about, if I may coin the phrase, it's about uh, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And that's exactly what the war effort in World War II. And of course, not just in the factories, but also in the front lines too. And in fact, I have to tell you, when we were when we were working on this book, we had the title Freedom's Forge as the original title. And the question was what kind of subtitle? The editor and I went back and forth on this because um, one of the proposals was, you know, how American business won World War II. And I said, I don't think that's what we want to say. Because we have there'll be families who lost loved ones on Okinawa or on at Omaha Beach or at the Battle of Bastogne, who are going to find that a little offensive mm-hmm. to say that's how America won World War II. So the formula, the, the subtitle I came up with, which I think epitomizes what American business and the auto, automobile industry's real contribution was, was is that it's the story of how American business produced victory. 
because production, mass production, uh, the, 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 the triumph of quantity over quality, and then realizing that when you move to a mass production effort like this, that where, that where the focus is on making as many of, of it, of, of the product as possible, whether it was warplanes or tanks or machine guns, that, that in the process of focusing on quantity, the quality improved as well, that you could build in innovation and, and, and new ideas and new ways of not just making the production move faster and more efficiently, but also of making the product itself more effective, more lethal, let's say, or safer, uh, that all of those elements came into play when, when the mass production process was really set in motion and allowed to do what it can do. You've got a good story about the Jeep that didn't make it into the book, but tell us about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic story in a lot of ways. And it's one that really kind of, I think, when we think about the impact of, and the legacy of World War II and the, and the arsenal of democracy, of where it, where it points us in the future as well. What you got to understand is, is that uh, in 1940, as part of the war mobilization effort, the U.S. Army decided it was time to develop a light utility vehicle, light passenger vehicle, that it could be used on all fronts uh, and it could be uh, versatile enough, but also sturdy and strong enough to you know, stand up to battlefield conditions. So one of the requirements, for example, was that, it, of course, it would have to have, had to have four-wheel drive. But it also that it had to be light enough that you could have six guys pick it up and turn it around. So it, it couldn't be too heavy, but it had to be robust enough that it could you know, handle all-terrain driving in any kind of conditions. This is the summer of 1940, right? So it sends out requests for proposals. The War Department sends out a request for proposals to 186 companies across America, including all the major manufa- uh, automobile manufacturers. Two of them answered the request. Nobody else wanted to have anything to do with it. Not Ford, not General Motors, not Studebaker, nobody. The two companies that did, one was Bantam, which was actually a primarily engaged in making agricultural equipment. And um, Bantam did it because they were about to go bankrupt. And this was like the last roll of the dice. They said, maybe we can get a government contract out of this to make this thing because otherwise we have to fold and shutter the factory. So one company was Bantam. The other one was Willis. And Willis was run by a guy by the name of Barney Roos, R-O-O-S, who had um, lived in Europe for a number of years in the 1930s and was pretty familiar with European automobile design uh, and the work that companies were doing over there. And Willis had, uh, I'm sorry, Roos had always thought that Americans were a little over, a little obsessed with size with automobiles. That, you know, the big Packards, the big Oldsmobiles, the big Buicks, and so on. And he thought that the, the, the time was right for Americans to, for, for a market to open in, in smaller cars, ones that would be both affordable, but also very drivable. At the same time, you know, that would be a really handy piece of transport for getting around and someone that wouldn't have, you know, the, the big bodies and uh, that went with it. So what Roos did was he saw this, the, the competition for this light utility vehicle for the Army, as an opportunity to introduce a design for small automobile. 
which was, of course, became the Jeep, which stands for general purpose automobile, which was the general purpose, which was the, you know, the vehicle that, that the army was looking for. Well, the competition became went head to head, Bantam versus um, versus Willis for this. In the end, Barney Roos's design won out. Um, the, there was a clamor at the War Department to shift the whole production line over to Ford because they had, you know, Willis was a small company, mid-sized company, we would call it today, not fit to turn out tens of thousands of these designs here. But Bill Knudsen said, no, Willis has the original design. They should get the original production line. But what we'll do is we'll allow the design to be adopted by Ford and we'll turn Ford loose with it. But it's Willis's design. It'll be Willis's Willis's machine from this point forward. And that's what's so fascinating about this is, is that Barney Roos's, and of course they did, they made a half a million of these things of the Jeep during wartime. And it turned out to be everything that, that the army had wanted and more in terms of durability, in terms of versatility, drivability, all those kinds of things that went with it. But what's interesting is, of course, is that Roos was right, that after the war, there would be a growing market for a smaller, more sort of utility type of vehicle um, in the American American automobile market. And uh, hey, Roos's design is, you know, uh, stood the test of time. Ford didn't make any changes in the production they did. You know, the 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 grill on the front of the Jeep, sort of, you know, it's trade, it's sort of you know iconic grill there. Uh, Ford added two more slots. <laughs> Willis originally had seven. Ford added nine. Only design change they made. And it's, I think, a tribute to Barney Roos that this design that he came up with in 1940, right, has stood the test of time. I can't think of any other automobile anywhere in the world whose basic design has lasted, you know, for now 80 years. I don't think there's anything like it. Well, to this day, Jeep enthusiasts daydream about the war surplus Jeep packed in a crate. Absolutely. Oh my God. That would be the, or, or a Bantam Jeep, you know, those right. things too are, uh, are, are beyond collector's items. You're probably better off trying to buy a Shakespeare first folio than you are buying a, buying a Bantam Jeep. Dr. Herman, I know we're running short on time and uh, there's so much we didn't get to, but people definitely need to read the book. It's so engaging. The personalities come alive. Before we go, let's mention a little bit about your latest book, which is called The Viking Heart. Oh, yeah. The Viking Heart is, uh, and it's it's ironic, isn't it? Because in many, one of the chapters uh, of the book talks about Bill Knudsen and, and Sorensen and about, you know, their, as a contribution as Scandinavian Americans to America. It's a book that really is about, it, it's a book that's divided in two parts. The first part is about the Vikings themselves, about the, the experience uh, and, and the, the world they made uh, during their forays and uh, their expeditions starting in the 8th century, 8th century AD. You know, I was originally trained as a medievalist. That's my original background. So writing about Vikings and about uh, Dark Age Europe, medieval Europe, it's, it's great. It's been able to sort of bring that bring that background and research into the into, into my into my list of books from that point of view. But so the first part is about the Vikings and about what made them so unique and so so different from the other peoples of Dark Age Europe, and also how they really become the the the, the forerunners of globalization with their incredible voyages. 
you know, reaching all the way east across Russia to the Black Sea, and eventually Viking traders going as far as Baghdad. That that's on the eastern eastern side of the globe, and then on the other side, and the western side, of course, reaching across to North America and establishing settlements there, as well as through the Mediterranean. Uh, it's a it's a it's an amazing story. The second half of the book is about how that particular cultural skill set that the Vikings really relied upon, and it becomes part of the warp, warp and woof of, of, of Scandinavian history in the post-Viking age. And I talk about what happens to Scandinavia when the Viking age winds down, when Christianity comes to Scandinavia, and when Sweden becomes, improbably enough, a European superpower in the 17th century under its military genius king, Gustavus Adolphus. But also then how that skill set that I talk about, what I call the Viking heart, right? That commitment of hard work, of risk-taking, of a sense of family and community is the binding force of loyalty that ties society together. When they bring that skill set to America, the immigrants, Scandinavian immigrants, how it comes to affect and transform America, um, including my family. You know, my my mother's parents uh, came from Norway just before World War One. Uh, my father's great grandfather also came from Norway with the earlier wave of Norwegian immigration in the 1850s. In fact, arrived in America just in time to serve in the Civil War with the 15th Wisconsin Regiment. And I have a whole chapter about. Scandinavians in the Civil War and uh, and how my my great great grandfather's story personal story uh, ties in with uh, and illuminates so much of what the Scandinavian contribution in that war, including building of course the USS Monitor, right by a Swedish American immigrant John Erickson. We talk about that in the book as well. But uh, it was inevitable that in talking about the contribution of Scandinavian Americans, that two figures from Freedom's Forge that we've been talking about today, Bill Knudsen and, and Charles Sorensen are going to come into the story and about how they and other Scandinavian Americans, uh, uh, like, for example, um, Charles Johnson of Boring, Boeing, who was also you know, uh, a Swedish-American immigrant and the, his role in building the B-17 and then the B-29, that this is an important story along with Charles Lindbergh and the flight across the Atlantic, uh, Borglum Goodson and the and the and the and the sculptors on Mount Rushmore. Uh, Scandinavian Americans have really become an important part of our story. But I think this book makes it clear that we are a nation of immigrants, and that each of those immigrant groups brings with them a particular skill set that helps to make the American mosaic helps to make what it is America today. So, so the, that's the Viking book. We go from the dark age Europe right up through to, right up through to the 20th century. The Viking heart sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read it myself. Today, we've been talking about Freedom's Forge, how American business produced victory in World War II. Dr. Arthur Herman, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Listen to you too, Maurice. It's, it's been great. I'm, I'm glad we could finally connect. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast, tell your friends about it, and leave me five stars and a quick review. 
buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage if you want to support the show that way. Always appreciated. You can read articles and watch videos on my homepage at horsepowerheritage.com. And until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 